So, uh, welcome to my last episode of uh, Swisspreneur. Um, I'm very happy to uh, to be here today, and um, and for me it's like a super special episode because um, I have a very important announcement to make. And the thing is that uh, probably you realize that we were not very active during the last uh, couple months, um, and that has a certain reason. So what uh, for me um, happened during the last two years actually, I was building a, a company or a, a startup called Power Coders. Power Coders is a coding academy for refugees. And it took off so well and, and, and my heart is really um, at that place that I realized that I don't have enough time to, uh, to keep on doing Swisspreneur. Even though Swisspreneur was a, a, a super cool project for me, I did 16 episodes and, and it was like uh, a really uh, an impressive and every interview was very impressive for me and I learned a lot. So it was, um, as we say in Germany, it was with a, with a, with a um, crying and a, a laughing uh, eye that I had to, to, to make that step to say, okay, what could, what could we do at, at uh, Swisspreneur to continue? And, um, and so um, I, I met someone or I have a relationship with a guy called Silvan. Um, he's sitting next here already. So uh, I'm happy to have you on the show, Silvan. And, um, and maybe I can ask you some questions to start because in the end it will be you interviewing me and not the other way around, but, but that our audience has like, a short briefing of a little bit what, who and what you are doing and who you are. So who is Silvan Krenbil? Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having me also and for handing over such a fantastic project, Chris, and for the great work that you and Alain did over the past years. I grew up in the Valley of Emmental, close to Bern. Uh, was always involved in several small projects as a kid already. We printed and sold customized t-shirts, for example. So there was sort of this entrepreneur at heart uh, that continued through high school uh, when I got in touch with a first sort of mini company that we founded, then studied business administration and was always involved with entrepreneurship. And then right after my bachelor's degree, uh, we started our first company, Jim Hopper, in the fitness industry that we just sold about two months ago. So entrepreneurship has always really fascinated me and I think it's also a very important topic for Switzerland as a whole country. Very cool. Sounds sounds fantastic as a as a host. I think that's ideal. Um, uh, we discussed it thirty cer certain changes you will do with Swisspreneur. Maybe you can already tell our audience a little bit. What are your ideas? Where where do you want to take Swisspreneur now? Absolutely. So the two biggest changes will be that there will not be a video podcast, but we will switch to an audio format, just to keep the productions as lean and as simple as possible. And the episodes will also be a bit shorter than you were used to from the past. We will launch a six-month Swisspreneur Founders Essential course. This is actually the very first episode of it, where we, in the first part that will be launched in the first part of the month, focus on the personal story of the entrepreneur. And then in the second part that will be launched two weeks after the first one, we tackle a very specific topic, like today we talk about ideas to really deliver a great learning experience for people who want to start their own company in Switzerland. That sounds great. Yeah, actually, I think that's that's something we heard a lot already during when I was doing the episodes. So I think it's uh, like transferring knowledge from the more senior entrepreneurs to the wannabe entrepreneurs. I think that's that's terrific and it's something very important to do in Switzerland. So I'm very looking forward to that. So I will be one of your audio listeners then. Awesome. Um, 
But maybe, maybe like you, you were in touch with Swisspreneur. You were um, watching our videos, um, probably uh, like all of them, and at the, already from the beginning. Uh, why is Swisspreneur so important to you? Like, what, what's the ingredient that you say it is a project I want to take on and really captures your attention? Uh, I just think that entrepreneurship is not only a very fantastic job to have, but also a very important uh, an innovation driver for our country and important for Switzerland in that matter. And I just see that entrepreneurship in Switzerland is not yet a real c career alternative. If I talk to my grandmother, for example, she's still always asking me, when do you actually get a real job? <laughs> so for me, my, my goal here also with this involvement is to really put entrepreneurship on the map and position it as a real career alternative for young and uprising talents. Hmm. And with Swisspreneur, the goal really is to motivate and empower more people to start their own companies. Yeah, so I now start to cry because that's my uh, last uh, last move as a, as a host of this show. So I'm handing over now to you. Start leaning back and gonna be your uh, interviewee. So thank you very much, Sylvan, for uh, taking uh, this opportunity and, and, and being my successor and good luck. Thanks so much also for the great work you've put into this and it's uh, an honor to be taking over as host for you. Before we get started with the first question, I would like to introduce you to our sponsor, SBB Startup. If you think that your startup is a good fit to the Swiss railways, get in touch with them or learn more on their website on sbbstartup.com. Uh, you just mentioned it before, Chris, that you are now full-time working on your uh, new company, Power Coders, where you teach coding skills to refugees in, in Switzerland. And this company is set up as an association in Switzerland. And with that set up, you will never make an exit case. How does that make you feel as a founder? So for me, the exit was never the driver for being an entrepreneur. Um, for me, it was always creating something, solving a problem. And so the fact that we are an association was just the uh, strategic decision. As a, as a startup entrepreneur, you will um, um, be at a point, especially when you have investments to do, like if you're starting, maybe we can compare, we, we can start with a comparison. So um, if you have a consulting company or if you are building the next, um, um, the next pharmaceutical blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So if you are building a consulting company, you can like grow with your customers. You, you don't need external funds. Um, when you get a second project, a second consulting project, you just hire your friends or whoever you, you want to work with. Right. Um, but if you're building the next pharmaceutical blockbuster, you have to invest like over a period of like 10 years, a lot of money until you actually make the first um, franc of revenue. And so therefore, uh, it is important to get external capital. And with uh, uh, my former company, Atizo, where we have built a software, and now with Power Coders, we are somewhere in between. 
we are somewhere between this consulting company and this uh, this uh, this pharma pharma company, and so therefore we need a certain uh, uh, um, support. We need a certain funding. Um, it's funny because at the moment I'm like equal in terms of raising. Like I raised for a TESO about one million, mm-hmm. and uh, now for power coders I raised about one million now. So it's really at par. Um, and and but where I raised it from and how I was raising it was completely different. In in what regard? Um, so the main difference was that we were not raising from private investors who then want to have equity, but we raised mainly from foundations. We raised from the government, government grants, and probably this money would not have come to us if we would have been um, a, a corporate. Since we were an association, we were able to attract that money. The downside of it, we were not handing out shares. Mm-hmm. I didn't get shares. I could not. Uh, eventually, I will not be able to sell these shares. But on the other hand, no one will take over ever our association. It will always be with the members. So the fact what we sometimes see that there is a startup having an exit, a bigger startup is taking that company and is transforming it in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. And then you don't almost not recognize their mission, what they were actually doing. This will never happen to power coders. So it will always stay very stable. It will take step by step and so on. So for me, uh, it's not a problem since uh, an, an exit was never a driver. And I'm very certain that uh, Power Coders is not the last project I started. And so I'm, I don't know, maybe the next project I will start in five, seven, ten years sure. will be again an association. Or maybe then it will be again a, a for-profit company. Right. So, yeah, I think it's really important that people get that they should not think too much about the exit. Mm-hmm. I think exit is a, not a good um, advisor in the first couple months or years when you start a company. That's not not the driver. I, I think that's a very good and strong advice. Um, you also mentioned the different sources of funding. Did you also, if you compare them, like more government funding and more like investor funding, did you also feel a different level of pressure between these two different aspects of getting funded? No, actually not. I think the um, the government and the foundation um, have uh, a lot to do with reporting the impact, which is also very difficult to do. And the um, investor or business angel or VC money has a lot to do with reporting the growth and the, 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 the monetary development of the company. So I think... Um, it is at par. It has a little bit to do with how much do you promise. Mm-hmm. So don't overpromise. That's something you could do towards a government or a foundation or towards a private investor. So don't overpromise. Be very realistic and don't wait too long with reporting. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't report in both. If you don't report for like a whole year to a foundation and something is going wrong, they will be very badly surprised. If you report like already, like after three months, you give them a feeling, you invite them. I think it's really the same. It's like really managing investor relations mm-hmm. with another reporting content. Fair enough. Impact, revenue. And you sort of have to, I think that the common sense is, if I understood that correctly, is you still have to create something and to grow something. It's just a slight difference, but actually, if you look at it at the end, it's not that big of a difference, actually. No, no. I think it's actually. I think it's actually the the difference is the um, profit 
is um, substituted by the impact. Mm -hmm. But in the end, like if you don't manage um, a, a non-profit company in a very professional and money-driven way, you will go bankrupt. So at least you need to make one franc profit in the end because otherwise you will generate a loss and eventually the loss will kill you. So it doesn't mean that a non-profit company is just like party and you just care about impact. You also have to care about the business and you have to make sure that your business core is sustainable. Mm -hmm. I would also like to focus a bit on the employees. Um, is there any difference that you noticed between finding good employees? Because I, from my personal experience, that was always a very big challenge to find the best employees for your company. Do you notice any difference between having a, an association with a more impact-driven focus and having a startup company with a more probably exit or an investor-driven focus? Yeah, I think you have an additional incentive. Impact, in my view, is a huge incentive. Um, probably 10 years ago when I started Atizo, it was not the case or the people were not that sensible. Maybe it also has a little bit to do with my age. I'm now 38. Um, 2007, I was 27. So maybe that also has a, has a reason that I see like the people around me who have approximately similar age, like five years older, five years younger. Maybe they also think now a little bit more about impact and not so much anymore about profit. Mm -hmm. But I think that's great Like to have, like if you meet people, if you can make, uh, get them excited about um, your, your, uh, your idea, about your project, to, uh, to also mention impact. On the other hand, what I see is that if you have people who are um, aiming for an exit, then um, like a stock option plan or something like that, that's also a very good argument. Mm -hmm. So I think there again, it's like very similar. We are a little bit like with the investors. So like your additional argument is impact. If you are like on the social entrepreneurial side, your additional um, argument is um, an exit and a, a stock option plan um, where they in like in one out, out of thousands where a first employee could become a millionaire because he got like very early on a lot of stock options, which he then uh, um, uh, with the exit or with an IPO can make to money, which you don't have. So I think, again, it's a little bit the same. When I look at the people we are actually hiring, comparing the, 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 the um, profile of someone who is now working for Power Coders, comparing to someone working at Atizo, I think at Atizo, like both are developers. So I need in both uh, projects, I need developers. The developers at Atizo, they were building a platform. Mm -hmm. So their main reason why they joined was not an exit in their case. The main reason was the uh, technical challenge. So they wanted to have an interesting engineering project. Um, now with Power Coders, the main driver why they are joining is because they want to teach. They want to give someone else the opportunity. They want to enable. Mm -hmm. So it is another profile of people. But as we know, and to be honest, like software developer, it's like a very rare species. And so it is difficult to find good people. It has a lot to do with connections. It has a lot to do with recommendations. So I would not say that it's much easier now to find people just because we're about impact. Makes sense. Are the people working now for power coders, are they also older or is there not a big age difference? Yeah, I would say. I think the tendency you have is that you build a team around you. Mm -hmm. So um, what we see is that the core 
um, of the people, like the board, they are all like in their late 30s, I would say. Um, but then what we also have, and then we had at, at TISO, the core was like in their late 20s. Um, what we now see is that um, we at TISO, we had some early 20s. And at Power Coders, we also have these early 20s. Mm -hmm. So we have a bigger age gap, I would say. And I think that's like one of the big advantages like of yeah. that we see that these people are, um, are, are eager, eager to learn. And we are more like eager to share than maybe when we were like all more in the same, in the same age. And one very important team member at Power Coders now besides you is also your wife, Bettina. She was not involved in the first company in Atizo. How did you decide to sort of also work together and how has that impacted your business? Yeah, so uh, Bettina and I, we are together since 2002. Um, the first time I thought about Atizo was 2004, 2005 maybe. Mm -hmm. So she was very involved. She had no official role. And the same actually happened. So she had, she did a very uh, a successful career at a company called Wander. They're producing a product Ovaltine, which probably is known to almost everyone. And um, and she did like a, 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 a huge career there. So for her, like when I was building Atizo, it was never an option because she had like something that she was already uh, um, very highly invested in. But um, she was probably the most important person for me, which was not on our payroll. Mm -hmm. So she was involved. She had like to hear a lot of things about it. She had to give advice and so on. And so when it came to power coders, we realized that it is a little bit the same situation we had back then. That I was telling her about what we are doing and how we are doing. She was giving advice. She even did the accounting for me, like not, not paid, like more as a volunteer. At the beginning, when she started, she was the co-founder. Like, yes, you need two people for co-founding an association. Um, since we had to do it fast, we did it at our kitchen table. And so she was the co-founder. If there is a co-founder, she sure. would like, by law, she would be the co-founder. Um, and then um, and then we eventually said, but Bettina, like, do you like the project? You have the, you, you have the know-how, how to build a brand. We realized if we want to license or if we want to bring power coders to other regions in the world, the brand will be very important. So are you willing to build the brand? Are you willing to keep on doing the accounting? Because it will be, it will grow with more money coming in, with more money being turned around. Um, and so, um, and then she said yes. And, and that was actually the start where we said, okay, why, why not join? So it was like a very organic um, growth that she was growing into the team. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great story to sort of make your partner also part of your business. Do you think that could also be a, a risky aspect of like having each other involved too much? Yeah, I think since um, she would have been like, I think her involvement would um, not be um, would not be different in terms of like giving advice. Like she she was also with Atizo very involved. Mm -hmm. Like the problem, if you have um, someone in the core team that is your partner and in that terrible situation where we would have been splitting up, I would lose two important people. I would lose my wife and I would lose a core member of the team. Like with Atizo, that would not have been the case. Like with Atizo, I would just lost my wife. 
um, and not my uh, my marketing and finance officer, which I still would have. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest risk. But in the end, I think um, the pressure that this situation gives on the relationship, if someone is in the team, but not in the team, like being always at the sideline is also a danger to it. So like you could now go back and say, okay, with Atizo, Bettina was like doing so much for Atizo, but was never recognized for what she's doing. Sure. Is this not the higher risk for your relationship? Then it is now. Now, now I think it's like really integrated. And I think um, since you are spending so much time with your partner, the chances that um, that you you uh, you end up in a situation where nothing works anymore, I think are really unlikely. Like the risk starting a company with someone you don't know, and you end up in a situation where you say, "Hey, it doesn't work," because like in our like it's all in. Like we are playing poker with all chips on the table now, Absolutely. and so we have the highest incentive to make it work. And if that doesn't work, probably with any other founder, it would also not have worked. So I think it's like really, it's both sides. It's like there are advantages and disadvantages. I think for us in our situation, and since we are very like what I always say, like maybe that's like a very important message to all the founders out there. So if you look, um, what is an ideal founding situation? An ideal founding situation is co-founder is very um, aligned with you in values and they're very diverse in skills. And we are very aligned in values since we have even kids. So like we have to be aligned in values and we are very diverse with skills because Bettina is more the uh, research person. She is like very the strategic person and I'm more like the sales or outgoing person who is giving pitches, being outside, running around, really trying to convince people. And so there is like a great match. So we are really, really um, uh, aligned. And I think she as a co-founder, it's just a great match. And therefore it makes a lot of sense. And lucky me, I have such a great uh, wife too. So that's fantastic. <laughs> How close could you get or like evaluate if you have the shared values with someone that you're not having kids with? I don't know, it's hard to say. Like when I look at Atizo with Reto, we, we got like really, really close with the values. And I think it was more um, a process that I had to take place, which needed room. And with Bettina, it was already like history. Like we were aligned when she entered. And with Reto, it was more like that we had to drink some beers, that we had to talk about it. But I think you really, it's like, it's, it's done by guts. I think the gut feeling will tell you, is it more like a, 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 a process where you get closer and closer to each other? Or is this more a process where you are actually um, like, uh, you realize, okay, it's, 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 we, are, we are building distance. And the moment you realize we are building distance, that's the moment where you actually can already think about like, how do we solve the situation? Because, um, yeah, it's, it's the beginning of the end, I think. Like Absolutely. just not for the company, often unfortunately for the company, but hopefully not for the company, but it is for the relationship. And in the end, you will reach the point where you have to dissolve the, the, the founder situation. Absolutely. You also grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. Your dad was running a family business. So I think there are also some values that he uh, injected to you. And still you didn't take over his family business. Was there any certain pressure or even a situation where you could have thought about taking it over or why did you decide to not actually take it over? So I think there are two main reasons why not. 
The first main reason was that um, my dad was pressured to take over the family business. So he swore to himself that he will never pressure us. So we were not pressured. I didn't have to take it over. And the reason why I didn't want to take it over was that when I looked at my granddad, who actually started the company, he always had these sparks in his eyes when he was talking about metal and about welding and about all these processes you do with metal. And already when I looked at my dad, my dad didn't have these sparks. And I knew that I will not have these sparks. Like I had my sparks when I was talking about computers and about software and about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that was like my motivation. And then what also came into place that my dad somehow had the urge to um, make sure that he resolves the situation very early. So he's a planner. Mm -hmm. And then already 2002, when I was 22, he said, I have to decide. So, and at that moment, it was so clear that I will not take over. Like probably even if he would have waited another 10 years, I would have came up with the same decision. But at this moment with 22, for me, I didn't want to give the promise. And then I said no. And from then on, it was never ever a topic again? No, actually not. So my sister took over part of the family business. Um, and, uh, and that's like great for her, great for the family, I think. Um, and and I, I, I'm always involved, but I'm very happy with this sideline. Like my, my sister asked me if I want to be on the board now of the part that she took over. Mm -hmm. And then I said no, because I think I'm very good in the role of the brother giving her external advice. And the moment I would be on the board, I would be, I would have to be the chairman or, or whatever, the, uh, taking a board role. And I could not give her this external advice as a brother and maybe say, just sell the company or just stop it if that would be the best for her. So I think that's a very interesting point. Why do you think this would sort of, you know, the different role, having a, an official role and a not so official role lead to different outcomes in your advice? Because if I would be the chairman of the company, I would be advising the company. Mm -hmm. So I could even come to the situation where I, I would have to say my sister is not the right CEO for that company. Right. So let's replace her. If I'm the advisor to my sister, it's always my sister first. So I would not care about the company. The company could even go bankrupt as long as my sister is healthy. That's the more important thing. And I chose my sister over the company in that situation. And I think me explaining that to her was also put her in a situation where she was able to accept that I declined to taking the role of a board member and not saying yes, because it was not so easy to tell her that. Sure. So it's really also a matter of perspective what perspective you sort of take. Definitely. Yeah. I read in a 20 minute article um, that your life goal is to be happy. And we all know that after a cer certain years, you left Atizo. And so the question comes up to mind, were you not happy at Atizo? Yes, I was definitely not happy, um, which probably is an open, uh, open secret. So most of the people, probably investors and, and co-founders and employees even know. So um, when Reto and I started Atizo, we, uh, we were set to build a tech company. And um, we were very naive um, and we thought that um, companies out there in the world, so maybe I have to explain for the ones who don't know what Atizo, Atizo is doing. Atizo is an online brainstorming platform where companies like, for example, uh, Rivella could put a project on there and say, hey, we want to develop with customers a new flavor 
what could it be? And then our community of like uh, 20,000, 30,000 people were brainstorming and coming up with new ideas. What, what could it be? So it was a very customer driven innovation process. Um, and we thought that companies will go on our website. They will just order their innovation project. They will get these inspirations and then they execute. But in reality, we ended up to go to the companies. We had to convince them because they felt, oh, what? We are putting a challenge in the internet and our competitors see this challenge and that's crazy. Why should we do that? Um, and then they said, um, but these uh, ideas, like how do we, how can we digest like 600 or a thousand ideas? And then we said, yeah, you have these tools and here you have a fact sheet, how you can do a workshop and so on. And then they say, no, you have to do the workshop, come and do the workshop and, and come and convince our board and so on. So we, we started to like consult, like heavily consult the companies who were doing our projects and ended up like with a share of like, two thirds consulting revenue and one third actually our product. Mm -hmm. And we tried everything to, to prevent us from doing that. Like we tried to partner with, uh, with uh, um, consulting agencies who did the consulting part and then took our product. We realized that then they ended up and said, no, like the idea generation, we can just do, we can invite some external people and we generate on a flip chart some ideas. We don't need a TESO, it's too expensive to do it and the way. And so we ended up to be like a consulting company and every new hire, and that actually was for uh, Rito, my co-founder, was a sign that it doesn't go in the right direction. Every new hire was not a tech guy, but actually was a, was a consultant. Um, the company culture also changed because the consultants, they were driving BMWs and not bikes as we were driving. They were drinking Prosecco and we were drinking still beer. So like it was like really a change that took place. And, and in the end, it was not me pulling the plug because I just had not the, the, the guts to do it, um, but uh, the balls to do it. But actually, it was uh, my co-founder, Reto, who then said, yeah, but now we are seven years into the game and, uh, and we didn't end up where we wanted to be. And for me, I think it's I'm done. Um, how, how did this conversation go? Uh, I think you had several, I guess, uh, about yeah. this topic, but was there a certain moment where you really had this discussion? Yeah, actually, it was like we had a board meeting. We tried to convince the board of, uh, of a, a growth plan going to the U.S., Mm -hmm. implementing or trying again in the US if our model would work in the US, like the self, uh, self-serving self um, innovation projects over the internet. Um, um, but it was like we were too far along. Like it, I was not able to convince almost no one, like with Reto maybe half. And yeah, probably Reto was the one who was convinced the most, but like it was really hard to convince the board, the investors, the employees about this very ambitious plan. And when we realized that we are failing with this plan, that was probably the moment when Reto said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And he was like, he is also not very monetary incentivized. So he said, you can have my shares. Um, if you find someone, then you can sell them to them. Like if something, if I end up with a little bit of money for the shares, I'm okay. But in the end, if, if, if not, that's, that's also fine. And so, so he was very, very gentle on leaving, but for him, it was clear that he's leaving. And that put me in a situation where I had to say, uh, should I stay or should I go now? And then I actually came up with, I, I also have to leave. I started it with Reto. And that was also a decision which was highly advised or elaborated with Bettina. So Bettina took a very important role there and say, and then we ended up and said, okay, no, if Reto is going, you should go. And that's now the moment. 
And then that's where the whole exit then took place. And it took me about like 18 months to like really from the moment I decided that I want to leave to the moment where I actually then had one year earn out and I actually left. Okay. You also had some, uh, due to your network, some other people from the startup ecosystem in Switzerland who advised you on that. One of them was Mike Knaff from Doodle. In, in what way did his perspective or reflection on you also help you with that process? Unfortunately, not very much <laughs> because all the time when we met, he said, um, Chris, last time you said that um, Atizo is not going in the right direction. You're telling me that again. And now 12 months have passed and nothing happened. And I said, yeah, Mike, you are right. Yeah, I should really do something about it. And then like another six months, another 12 months, we are not seeing each other very regularly, like maybe once or twice a year. But we had like these meetings and Mike was like really just, yeah, confused or, or amazed by my, my endurance to always come up and say, I'm not happy. It doesn't go in the right direction, but still not changing anything. And so I, for me, it was like really a reminder. And maybe in the end, when I then said, should I stay or should I go? It made that I then said, okay, but now I actually wanted to leave three years ago. And Mike reminded me through these years, he planted the grain that I then, that I got the courage to then three years later say, okay, I, I, I leave too. And I think that was maybe the reason, but it, it is such a hard process to leave like what you have built. Like for me, it feels a little bit like now I have two sons. Mm -hmm. Starting a project feels a little bit like having a kid, like it's hard to compare them with like real babies, but sure. it, it is like you are strongly attached to it. You just don't want to leave. But then when you feel, okay, this baby now has grown up and it can be for its own, then it's also a time where you should say, okay, I let go now. And so, yeah. So this emotional attachment was one reason that kept you, although you actually wanted to leave for staying longer? I would say at least three years. Were there other reasons for example sort of i don't know sort of a feel you need to pay back your investors or you need to justify it to them or also sort of the feeling that you would fail if, if you yeah. leave too early was there any other feeling involved there i think actually the two two that you are mentioning so paying back to investors was uh, a thing like we were very lucky that we had great investors like really great entrepreneurs um and we had a very open communication with them so i remember a time where i um uh, had a talk with our lead investor um and i said to him but i have the feeling that you need your money back and that you want to have a high multiple on it. Of course. And then he said, uh, no, actually, like, like, I want that you are always honest and we don't know if I get my money back. But like the only thing which I would not accept if you would lie to me, but it was not about the money. And I think that's like the right mindset for an early stage investor that they go in there, that they say, hey, we are in this boat together. We are trying to get best out of it. But on the other hand, like I didn't like for my investment, my time investment that I did, I didn't get much back. Sure. So, so I think we were really in that together. And so I think that was not the main reason. Um, I wanted to give them the money back, but I never had the feeling that I have to, or otherwise they kill me or they yeah. speak bad about me or something like that. Um, do, do you think that this is the norm for Swiss investors that they think that way or that this is more the exception? I can't tell. I can't tell, but it's a strong advice. It's a strong advice to the investors to think about and reflect. Do they maybe hurt their company? And then it is also an advice to the startup people to reflect at the beginning, what are the mo um, what is the motivation of my investor? 
is it like really that they say like I'm, I'm not speaking about vcs here i'm really speaking about the early business angels the early ones that come in yes um and so that's important and i think it's more than advice i can't tell if if the if but that's a good question you can ask now from now on you can ask everyone you're interviewing this question I, I would be very, uh, very intrigued to hear what others say to that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people involved in the startup ecosystem. So I think you'll meet both sides depending where probably, you Probably, probably, yeah. And then the second thing, which I think is important when you are, uh, when you are building something is like for me, I knew it is my first, uh, first startup that mm -hmm. got like uh, national uh, recognition. And so for me, it was important not like to write a success story, but finishing it in a good way not not it's still there so it sure. still survived so that was finishing in a good way but for me exiting on good terms and if i would just have said oh i don't care i just leave and yeah. probably everything would have been imploded uh, everything would have imploded and so therefore i said okay now i really have to come up with a plan and i have to make this exit that we can save um uh, uh jobs for employees that we can save the brands, that we can save the community and all these things, that was also very important. And that also probably attached me to it for the three years when I took the decision. And then for another 18 months to say, okay, before I leave, I make sure that we are in a sustainable situation. Absolutely. And lucky me, I had two employees who are great guys who are still now doing a TISO and it's thriving. They're doing a good job. They're probably compared to me. They're very happy with the consulting business. They're doing a good job in that. And so therefore it was like really a perfect match. And it would have been sad to not giving them the opportunity to do it. And I mean, to be fair, looking at the statistics, creating a company that's still operating and alive after all these years, that's already a big success because most companies that get started don't even make it to that point. True, definitely. So I think it's always, again, a sort of a point of perspective. True, definitely. True. Uh, circling back this question, were you not happy at the Tito? Is also the question, are you now happy at Power Coders? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm very happy at Power Coders and it not just has to do with Power Coders, but actually it has a lot to do with the phase we are in. So uh, Tony Schneider in one of the interviews, I think it's episode uh, four, um, he said um, there are three different kinds of startup entrepreneurs. There is the guy who is building the idea and onboarding the early team. He needs to be someone who is like going through the wall and convincing everybody. Mm -hmm. Then you have someone who is actually bringing something to the market, driving first revenue, getting the market proof and building it around it. And then there is the third who is actually growing the whole thing. And I'm definitely like very happy with one and two. And when it comes to like growing something and executing, I'm, I'm, I'm just not as good because I really love this finding out and pivoting and, and trying new things. And so I'm more the innovator maybe than I'm actually like the growth entrepreneur. And so I think it has a lot to do with, with the stage we are in right now. Mm -hmm. But to find this out, I think it's actually also pretty difficult because most of us never get to the later stage where I can actually work on that and really determine whether they fit that job description or not. That's true, but you see the tendency. So when you start a project, you see, do I get happier mm -hmm. or do I get less happy? If you get less happy, you probably should rather stick with the first phases. Like you can do that by 
giving up your uh, CEO role and say, no, I'm taking a smaller role. I'm developing new cool uh, products. Sure. Or you say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the guy who wants to stay in the driver's seat. Like I'm like Mark Zuckerberg for me. It's like, it's, he's amazing. Like he went from like, I think he's one of the few persons who has all these roles um, and still driving the company and still driving the growth. But I'm definitely like, I felt that with all the administration, the people management and so on, that made me less happy. And so I think it's really about finding out and, 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 and always listen to yourself and finding out how does it fit. Yeah. I think that's a very good indicator and also a very good point to come to a conclusion here for the first part. Before we end the episode, I would like to ask you about your favorite tools or gadgets that you use on a regular basis and that you can recommend to other people. Okay, um, good question. Uh, I, I, I'm rather in this, uh, I'm rather the interviewer than the interviewee. <laughs> I was asking that question too. But um, I think for me, like super productive is Inbox. So I'm using Inbox as my uh, um, mail client. It's but the one of Google, right? Yeah, yeah. So it actually was a startup outside of Google and it got acquired. Um, and um, I, what I love there, actually, it's my to-do list. So like a lot of my to-dos have to do with emails. Mm -hmm. And then what you can do is that you put your own notifications, like that you put, you create your own to-dos, which then appear in your in your to, uh, in your inbox. And what's also interesting is that you have like this boomerang function where you can say, okay, I can't do it right now. You send it away and then it comes back at the moment when it gets relevant, even location and time-based. I'm more the type who is time-based, but I could even say, okay, these are tasks I can just do when I'm at home. Then I could say, okay, when I get back home or back to the office, then all these tasks come in and then I can work on these tasks. So this makes me very productive. And then another one, which I'm now like a great, uh, great fan of is Headspace. So mm. I started to meditate. I did some yoga through yoga. I came to meditation um, and Headspace for me, it's just a great app. You can uh, meditate like really for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, like really short. And I try to do that every, every day. And, um, and it just gives me like another perspective. Like my life is like quite stressful with my projects, kids and family. And it just gives me like a little, little bite of me time, which I, which I can highly recommend to have. And the second question in that regard is, are there any additional resources like blogs or podcasts besides Swisspreneur yeah, that so, you would recommend other people to check out? Yeah. So someone I really like and was a great inspiration for me um, doing Swisspreneur was Tim Ferriss. So Tim Ferriss show, it's like great. Um, then um, also there is a guy, uh, uh, Kevin Rose, uh, who does a, a very similar to Swisspreneur um, episodes uh, in the US um, called Foundation. Um, I unfortunately, think, he stopped it. Yeah, unfortunately, he's not active anymore. But that's like a little bit the thing with when you're producing episodes and it's not your uh, full-time thing. I think he started um, a, a, a company. And so that was the reason why he stopped. Unfortunately, he didn't find a Sylvan probably who then continues. But like, I think these episodes are timeless. So like there are, and he even did 40 or something above yes. 40. So like there are great interviews with Elon Musk, like people we probably will never get to because we are Swiss and not like as close to them. But so I think it's like, if you love uh, Swiss printer episodes, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great resource, even though he's not active anymore to look at some of them. Uh, uh, foundation episodes yeah great recommendations thank you so much for uh, being our guest here today and introducing the episode 
and we'll see you again in two weeks for the second part. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for taking over. Thank you.